Welcome to Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Today's story, All He Surveys, Volume 1, Chapter 11. I hadn't told Eli everything, but he probably suspected as much. For my part, I now knew, or was pretty sure, that he was here on his own. He might have had a few local agents in place. The bartender had to be one, since we'd chatted in front of the guy, lowered voices notwithstanding. But a safe place to talk, and someone watching your back, are two very different things. If he had people nearby, I never saw them. That didn't mean much, since quality sensors could track a person anywhere they went inside a station. Lady Trasal's cop goons had access to that sort of network, so they never had to follow me or anyone else in person. An OSA officer on foreign soil, so to speak, playing undercover games as a cop on special assignment, might have had the same resources. That was speculative, but he hadn't invited me out for drinks because he was lonely. He was worried about what I'd do, or wanted me to think he was. His secret list ghost story was hard to believe. Then again, he knew stuff about me that could only originate from restricted records, so they were collecting data at the very least. He had dropped the corporate space operation into the conversation just to get a rise. A&IB and Fleet Intelligence both knew that entire story. Heck, they were in that story. The Office of Stellar Affairs was a separate espionage division entirely, even though it operated within Fleet, just like its main intelligence division. The OSA answered directly to the Admiral Platinum class who sat in the military high chair, acting as a small, elite group of covert operators largely free of bureaucratic oversight. Unless Eli's office had a poor working relationship with everybody else, he knew the corporate space story, too. Spies don't lie more often than most people, really. They just do it better and for higher stakes. His performance was weird and was meant to be, behavior designed to produce a desired effect only he understood. I decided to ignore it. The two of us parted ways with the vague assurance that he'd call when he needed me. I, in turn, dropped the subtle hint that I wouldn't answer when he did. That left me alone, and with a choice to make. Lady Trasal would be in motion. Her plans would be. I didn't care about those. They didn't concern me, even though I'd been caught in the crossfire. She had to go. Barring that, she had to be defanged. The former was best handled by utilizing people with mastery of very different skills than I possessed. Even if I could catch her and her people out in space somewhere while I was sitting in a gunnery suite, 
Dorcas had been splashed by what was almost certainly a military vessel spoofing a civvy electronics profile. Nothing else could explain the efficacy and type of attack, even though, as the day unfolded and more news came out, all the traffic satellites in the area agreed the pirate had been a moderately sized civilian-class cargo ship. Military vessels had military hardware, and military hardware was beyond civilian gunnery capabilities. Usually. Mostly. There were documented exceptions, which I'd studied in the past, but they were exactly that. Exceptional. The circumstances, the crews, the ships. Every time a decisive civilian combat victory could be said to have occurred in such battles, something important had been way out of average. The civvy ships had been modified, the military vessels had been crewed by incompetence, unlikely technical faults had occurred at inopportune times, and more. There was always something strange about such fights, something unforeseen and unrepeatable. I checked out of the capsule motel and took a room at a very cheap place way over to station portside, just to keep moving. It was little more than a flop house, but had paper-thin walls between myself and the fellow drifters to either side. That was enough to maintain the illusion of security for a couple of shifts. Attacking me there would be inconvenient for whoever tried it. Such places were where people with trouble stayed, people who made a certain type of background noise they could silence in a moment when something seemed to miss. I'd gotten tuned into it over the years. If any cop goons came for me there, I'd have a heads up. I prepared a method of egress they would be unlikely to expect, an outfacing plastic wall held to the motel's metal frame with clips. It would be easy to pop out. Then I could make a dash down a dirty alley, followed by a narrow side street, and then out to a main thoroughfare where a cab could be hailed. That's where my head was suddenly. Fast exits, dashing for cover, shadows, avoiding scanners, avoiding cops, avoiding people. It was silly, of course. They knew where I was, or could easily find out if so inclined. I was still alive, which meant they were all busy. Again, I'd be part of the mopping up process, which had yet to begin. I monitored the local news nets, and no additional outrages were being reported. It was all about the pirate attack, the horror of it all. Nothing of note going on inside the station. That was good. It meant Lady Trissal was satisfied for the moment, happy with the outcome, and looking elsewhere. If I was going to do anything, the time for it was approaching, and running just wasn't the plan. I managed to get some sleep, and the motel's grungy communal shower was enough to make me feel vaguely alive when I finally got up, Nine hours later, I ate at a shabby automat and studied shipping schedules arriving at the hub in order to get a sense of which vessels were docked, which were getting ready for launch, and which others were approaching. Three shifts passed. A full day. 
I decided that this was enough inactivity to allow everyone involved, known and otherwise, to take a breath. Then I checked a cargo manifest number that had been pasted to the side of a box, which I had caught as a still image with my retinals. I used the public network to research contact information of a specific delivery company. I made a bogus complaint call, argued with a dedicated AI for a few minutes, then took a tram ride. It was time to kick over some furniture. The first stop of the day was fruitful, a transfer depot. Inquiring at shipping and receiving, where I acted like a nervous personal assistant trying to track down a misplaced bag for my fussy employer, got the name of a transport service that had taken the handoff. That service was mostly automated and relied on a centralized distribution nexus three kilometers to anti-spinward. I got on a tram going that way and watched everyone who did so after me. I saw lots of suspicious characters, but that's what you get when using suspicious eyes. I could very well find what I was after. I might even do it quickly. But that didn't mean I should act in haste. And I might not be the only one searching. That part was the most troubling right now. Lady Trasal had everyone playing catch-up. She had a goal, and all the blood on the floor spoke to how she dealt with impediments. Eli's song and dance had not been off the top of his head. He knew things, which meant there were things to know, and other people probably knew or could learn them too. That thought put a spring in my step. Walking by a store window, I caught a flash of my reflection and thought of the frowning doorman at the Bearson Arms. I looked the same. I looked like I always did. Buzzed hair thinning on top and going gray at the temples. Olive complexion and brown eyes. Shallow beard with a bit of silver. Fat and wearing a seedy flight suit that did little more than accentuate that fact some cheap, comfortable soft shoes which could use replacing, an overstuffed flight bag on one shoulder. That all had to change. I couldn't look the same anymore. My paranoia was in full swing. Indeed, the police could have had a dedicated AI tracking me with the station's internal sensor grid. Simplicity itself, if Piani Trasal's connections were as strong as circumstances implied. I could do nothing to change that unless I tapped Eli Marzian to subvert it. He might or might not want to, might or might not be able to. He was in hiding, after all, undercover or whatever. He had trusted me with that knowledge. Why was that? Why take such a risk? <laughs> Those psychovals. I wouldn't betray him. I'd die before I betrayed him, not out of loyalty, but out of perverse pride. No one can tell me anything. <laughs> Caught you, Eli, showing your manipulation. 
My only strategy was the one that had proved reliable over the years and which had kept me alive out among the stars. Movement. Change of location. But now I had to change as well. And that was new. In my life, I'd never stepped into a cosmetic spa before. Syndra, my niece, a self-styled fashionista, had tried to get me into one once when there was a big year-end event with the Vernays family. It corresponded with the Emperor's Diamond Jubilee, his 75th birthday celebration. Elmond, the Vernays patriarch, had had to attend the pageant in person along with his wife and daughter. Appearances mattered sometimes far more than their interrelationships, but the entire length and breadth of the Empire was involved. The planet Duenda, owned lock, stock, and barrel by the Vernays, was no different. Of course, I refused to go to some spa just to tidy up for a celebration which I had exactly zero reason to care about. It wasn't a big debate anyway, since her real reason for calling me was to help maintain her sanity. At that time, Syndra had been involved in many of the organizational efforts for the family on Duenda, which were sometimes overwhelming. I'd gotten pretty good at reading between the lines of her bravado, even from a distance, and bowed out of a contract early, taking a big financial penalty, so I could jump onto an expensive, straight-run, cold-passage transport. I was on the ground and helping her less than 72 hours real-time after receiving her message, and she wasn't surprised at all. After that, I more or less acted as a buffer between the poor little rich girl and the many organizational crises that arose minute to minute. She had assistants and secretaries by the bushel, but no one who could tell her when it was time to turn off comms, to grab a meal, to take a nap. She sniped, complained, and dumped frustration on my shoulders the whole time. And when it was over, held me close and said thank you. Then she cursed me for a fool because I had already signed to another berth. She was notably kind with servants, supportive of her relations, professional with fellow nobles, suspicious of strangers, and caustic with me. Snapping at her weird uncle was her way of dealing. I knew that. Staying on the move was mine. She had come to understand that in time. Well, she'd come to accept it. The rest of her family didn't, but I was rarely underfoot, so they didn't care. Elmond was friendly. This for no reason I could understand other than he valued loyalty, and I'd proven mine long before we'd ever met in person. He liked that his favorite little cousin, with the fiery temper only barely covering a heart-rending delicacy, had someone in her life that she trusted without question, even if it wasn't a blood relation, nor one who was always close at hand. I didn't want to like the guy, because with a family as important as the Vernays, he was effectively a politician, and my opinion of such people was generally low. I had yet to see anything in him to despise, but he was smart and had many responsibilities. 
and he had power, which always attracted opportunists and enemies. He was like Sindra's dad in that way, only without all the paralyzing social conventions, archaic trappings of power, and legions of toadies. Most especially, he was a younger man, or at least younger than Hark Vernays had been when I knew him, younger than me, in fact, by a decade. He was still free of a lifetime of mistakes, perhaps mistakes coming due on a snowy world, frozen but burning, ever burning. I stopped on the sidewalk. I'd been making my way from the shipping nexus and had to lean against the wall of a building. It was too close then. Thinking like this always brought it back, and when that happened, it was always too close, too vivid. Barlow again. Barlow always. I could go to a memory therapist and have that world excised from my mind completely. But forgetting it would mean forgetting Sindra, or at least her proper context. And still, who I was would remain, just as would the world of Barlow, which had taken so much from so many. This wasn't a panic attack, not a full-blown one anyway. I hadn't gone through one of those in a long time. But they were always in there, waiting. And the strangest of things could trigger them. A glint of light off a row of drinking glasses in a bar that looked like ice for a moment. The roar of a crowd in a sports vid. The smell of burning metal and plastic while walking by an incinerator on an industrial way station. A gathering of elegant people. Thoughts of the Vernays brought up those of other events I'd attended with them. An uncommon formal gathering of the family, when Elmond had been officially recognized by the College of Families as the legal patriarch, making him the new leader of the clan. It had come years after he'd already been doing the job, of course. That is, after Sindra's dad had died. It was also my first visit to Duenda to be present for this important occasion and to finally meet the rest of the family. There they were, the rich, the powerful. There I was, the new uncle, the new specimen from Barlow. No, <laughs> maybe too close after all. I gripped a corner of the wall with one hand, and my breathing got quick and shallow. I didn't move while... The people of this foreign place, filled as it was with strangers and enemies and spies and murderers with unfinished business, glanced furtively with hunger and recognition. Or was it utter indifference and self-absorption? It had happened then, too, on that first visit, not caring about what sort of impression I made and worrying over it anyway. When I saw men in uniform chatting quietly, looking around at everyone else, measuring and scheming, looking at me sometimes, doing the same thing. Sindranea 
held me in her arms in front of them all. This was a culture that de-emphasized emotional displays. I was the mysterious Hananklo Astaran, literally Uncle Spacer, which sounded like a character from a children's vid program. They'd been confused, these, my new relatives. I had wandered out of the mud and frost of that brutal world into all their lives. I'd helped bring their prickly young relation home, but had failed to save her father, the former patriarch, who had only been there at all to cement the family assets in agrochem manufacturing. He'd never planned to live there permanently, and he certainly never planned to die there. For no reason anyone could understand, not even me, after all this time, I'd been brought into the family through a tradition of quasi-adoption, opening up opportunities and obligations I'd never asked for. At that formal gathering, holding on to the one person in all the galaxy that I trusted, the shaking finally stopped. The panic had brought on tears, but they were hers, not mine, and she just smiled, calling me an unshaven vagabond. That was the first time in my life that I knew what family really meant. Wall to my back, I stared out at Giuliano Colony, at its people and their bustle, shadows tramping by, feet on feet, dramas and comedies which were just tragedies dressed in pretty frocks. They moved along, oblivious to my memories and to the death of a man, a man on a ship which was itself now dead because he was not the only one meant to die. This was a constructed place, yes, but unique out here among the human stars, and set within a necklace of many such, strung together to make up a whole, a civilization. The power that held them together was ingrained within law and custom. There were imperial demands and local concerns and wolves that prowled the dark. All of this was transient. If a ship could be destroyed as a quick afterthought, just one more detail to be seen in someone's grand ambitions, that a metal city like this was hardly any safer. It would take more than a pirate disguise to destroy it, but wolves ran in packs. Only the good lady's perceived need for a tempered hand, dealing out death in what she might have seen as moderate but necessary portions, allowed this place, or any other that might be in her thoughts, to continue living. I was only alive myself because I was of such low priority on her list of details. That could be different soon, perhaps even by the end of the day. My place on that list, one of many, it seemed, could change. I was in this thing now. I'd been unlucky, wrong place and time. Or maybe I'd been prepped and pushed into it by cunning folks light years away. However it had come about, I was poised now to do what I did best and despised most. The building's stone-mold facade was my only support. 
the rough blonde surface doing duty for my legs and will. Half a dozen steps from the sliding doors of the spa and the start of something I might not be able to finish alive. In. Out. Most killers have no idea what war means. They might know how to take a life, but they don't know how to upturn societies and scour cultures. How to rip them out by the roots like diseased wheat. Whole populations and classes of people plowed under and forgotten. They don't know how to ruin worlds. In. Out. But I had seen that happen before. And I had taken notes. In. Out. This would all be fine. Yes! Though not immediately. And certainly not for everyone. In. Out. My breathing was normal now. I stood away from the wall, moving toward the spa with measured control. Steps short, but steady. Time to begin. My makeover was as comprehensive and transformative as one who knew me might expect. I now looked like a well-groomed hobo instead of a shabby one. I'd been hoping to at least reach charming rogue status, but no spa can create something from nothing. I was at least clean, styled, and had a nice bespoke suit on the way. I provided proof of my connection to the Vernays family, including an ident scan, and they didn't bat an eye at the expense thereafter. Neither did I, though I did wince a bit since I was paying for it myself. This was expensive because pampering was expensive, because hand finishing and exclusivity were expensive. It was what these people, which now included me since I was playing the part, took for granted. The suit required some hours, they said. True, its construction would be mostly robotic, but a human would still be the designer and do the final touches by hand. I should be ready for a second fitting because, well, that's just what one did. The Vernays had offices here, as they did on most stations near the border. The companies and investments of the family were wide-ranging, so they employed agents in many places to oversee the day-to-day -day stuff that came and went through the ports and cities where trade and commerce were at their heaviest. I rarely ever checked in with such places, except to occasionally fire off an interstellar missive to Syndra, which was free for family. Today was exceptional. The Vernay's office was just closing for third shift, what ground pounders might consider nighttime. 
after a supercilious counterwoman verified my identity and then apologized for being rude. I was still in the flight suit, so her doubts were valid. The manager came bustling out, all too pleased to help a titled member of the family, even one so barely connected. I took this guy aside in his office and asked for all the scuttlebutt concerning important people currently on station. As one who represented the professional interests of a noble family, information about any bigwigs in the vicinity fell very neatly into his purview. He knew much and speculated on more. He'd have gone on for hours, probably, but at one point he mentioned social events with all the associated details I could hope for, and I stopped him there. Then I gifted him a little something in hard credit, which had a hard limit being for my own coffers. He took this condescendence with frothy assurances that such was never needed nor expected, though always greatly appreciated. And you're sure this is happening tonight? I clarified before leaving. And he was. I got the call for my second fitting after this, the spa staying open past its usual hours for a nobleman. Their biosensors took my measurements again. They showed me a range of options, and a woman who wore a tape measure around her neck the way one of the faithful might a holy symbol insisted that charcoal with razor-thin, colorful pinstripes was in this season. Men's fashion didn't change rapidly, but this was set to be the new thing, she observed. I decided to trust her expertise, because I appreciated it when non-experts trusted me. The suit took nearly an hour more to process and fit. But once I had it on, brother, it was a beauty. Easily the best garment I'd ever owned, let alone the best suit. It made my wallet cry, but... I wasn't listening. Not this night. Though ostensibly a private gathering, the presentit, as it was called in Seishan, was a sort of formalized cocktail party, usually held at a private residence, or if the organizer was away from home, at an upscale restaurant or banquet hall. Such parties could have a number of purposes. Sometimes they were secondary functions, like an after-party associated with a young noblewoman's coming out in society. Sometimes it was a sedate birthday celebration. Sometimes a business meeting, thinly disguised as something more informal. The word could mean many things to many people, and everything to some. The manager at the Vernet's office had revealed that the place for the presentit was a restaurant that I doubt Chef Irina would have had much to complain about. A dark, richly decorated eatery called Neezines. Pulling up in person, in a human-piloted rental limousine arranged for me by the spa, I discovered it to have green doors and two security drones floating nearby. A blonde, terribly handsome young man, terribly well-dressed, stood in front of them as a greeter-slash-doorman. He was so preternaturally beautiful, I found him hideous. A couple was just entering as my car pulled up, dressed even better than I. Exiting, I waved in the air to set my retinals to record mode, then tipped the driver for the eight-block cruise from the spa 
and dismissed her. She rolled off happy, leaving me with no quick withdrawal from this place. I had no idea how long this would take or what it would entail, and she charged by the hour. This event had the look of a celebration, not a big one, but rather like a tasteful acknowledgement of small victories along the way to something great, nothing that needed advertising. That would be risky and gauche. No, this was a private function, in the sense that Piani Trasal had personal reasons to proclaim a bit of supremacy. That's how I chose to see it, because that made me angry, and I very much wanted to be angry. It was a brother to fear and a sister to victory. Sure, I made more mistakes at such times, but the entire evening was probably one, so why not enjoy myself while the ship was racing toward the rocks? As the limousine rolled off, I double-checked the time and the new arrivals. It was going to be close. <laughs> this was stupid! <laughs> I was being stupid. But if I did this thing this way, I could live with myself. I could sleep at night. Maybe not with the cottony oblivion of the innocent, but at least free from the sweat-drenched sleep torture of the haunted. As I say, notes had been taken. I mounted the short stairs and smiled, because a smile could mean anything. Sometimes it was just the price of admission. I wasn't on the guest list, but I breathed into the portable ident device that the jean-sculpted Adonis in the expensive suit presented, and when it came through as Familiancano of the Vernays clan, well... Lists weren't everything. Everything was knowing your employer and anticipating her desires. A function like this, on a station like this, warranted every noble it could find. Appearances mattered. Acceptance by one's peers had value. Legitimacy was currency. And on this night, I had cash to burn. The beautiful man gave me a warm smile, speaking the language of the nobles, which I had my retinals translating on the fly. Greetings and platitudes, easy enough to parse. The two drones didn't move, which was the only comfortable thing they could have done. Blondie bowed. I nodded, then went in like I belonged there. Because I did. I was Lady Piani Trasal's guest of honor. She just didn't know it yet. The place was dark, but my retinals were set for automatic light amplification, and they brought everything into near-perfect clarity after a moment. The ceiling in the foyer, if that's what they call it in the restaurant trade, I hadn't been in it long enough to learn, was low, and it simulated a tropical sky. The holographic phantoms of palm fronds swayed slowly back and forth, supporting a few actual potted palms that ringed the place. I walked up a few more steps, and a mater d' was standing there, a woman as sculpted as the creature outside. She wore a suit and tie and had two lesser attendants to either side, and all three of them looked unreal. 
It was, in fact, possible that they were each machines, androids with discrete AI, or more likely a single AI with many puppets. If they were, they were the good ones, though as extensions of the restaurant and its owners, it was the same either way. Soft ukulele music drifted in and out on an artificial breeze, and the regular wash of waves rolling lazily up on a tropical shore could be heard in the indistinct distance. Welcome, Familian Cano de Santos, the woman in the center said, addressing me in accented English. My ident info would have been piped to her, along with my public background details. The restaurant already knew who I was, where I was from, and my dominant language. They knew much more, including my rank here in the empire, the social status of my noble family, and its approximate wealth, according to one or more public financial assessments. These weren't details you could instantly collate anywhere else in the galaxy, but it was all out in the open on this side of the border, because this was where it mattered the most. One of the satellite people broke off and gestured through an open archway that was dressed up to look like a cave entrance. It seemed horribly tacky for a place that otherwise exuded class, but I was the wrong person to judge. The merely decorative in life was invariably lost on me. Strange, then, that I had spent the better part of a shift and a half and much of my severance from a ghost ship to be able to walk in here now. On the other side of the facade was a surprisingly spacious ballroom. The tropical motif was absent here, and the music was more of a jazzy, classical style. No twangy little guitars, no bongos. Nor could they even be heard any longer, though I was only a meter inside. There were people, but nowhere near enough to fill the place. It had the feel of a deliberate move, like it was supposed to have just been thrown together, even if nothing had been left to chance. Lurking under the arch, I was just outside the room's yellow lights, while the guests hovered in sharp pools of illumination, flies circling and bouncing. No one looked my way as I approached, but all of them saw me. It was how these people did things. That much at least I'd learned in my time among Imperials. One woman of median height and raven hair down past her alabaster shoulders detached herself from a brace of sycophants and approached to meet me. As she did so, the android assistant, who probably wasn't, from out in the foyer, if that's what you called it, and whom I'd forgotten was even there, truly and completely, retreated with a bow. Familia Ancano de Santos, the woman smiled, extending a hand that sparkled with jewels. She wore a strapless burgundy evening dress that went to the floor, or really just centimeters above it, because her toes peeked out as she moved, perfect pedicure and matching color in evidence from open-toed high heels. She was beautiful, and not in the phony way of the restaurant staff. There could have been some jean sculpting there for all I knew, but she had wit 
and intelligence stamped on her every feature, things no cosmetic procedure could ever impart. This had not been obvious from all the vids and still images I'd studied. It was a shock. The way she glided. Such assurance, grace, and conviction. As I say, no heads had turned to follow my movements, but they all did hers. They would have even if she'd been a stranger. For this was a treasure to behold someone who owned the room any room she was in, even a slaughterhouse. Lady Trissal, I greeted, smiling in genuine delight, and I took her hand in mine. You have been listening to All He Surveys, Volume 1, a Star Drifter novel written and read by David Collins Rivera. This story is copyright 2022 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called i by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The All He Surveys theme is a piece called Blossom by Edward Maloff and is licensed through tribeofnoise.com. This story is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead nor any particular place or situation. Any similarities to such are purely coincidental. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. You can also check out my site, davidcollinsrivera.com, where you'll find everything Star Drifter, including more audio novels and stories, the Star Drifter tabletop role-playing game, podcasts, newsletters, and more. Stop by, won't you, and drop me a line. Thank you for listening. Take care.